Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Um, and I think we have people watching off-site, so good morning to there as well. Um, my name is Dan Herrick. I'm one of the uh, sleep doctors uh, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, at our office on the new Heater Road building, well, relatively new Heater Road building. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, I've uh, come to kind of talk about sleep problems um, that happen as we age and uh, what the symptoms are, what we do about them, and just kind of, um, in general, kind of talk about how to optimize sleep quality um, in any stage of life, but also as we get older, okay? Um, and I think um, as much as we can, we should keep it kind of informal, so if anyone has a question as we go along, feel free to interrupt me. It's not gonna be a problem, okay? So here's uh, an outline of what we'll be talking about. Um, I wanna first address kind of what are the normal changes in sleep with aging, so uh, what we know uh, happens to yeah. someone who's healthy as they get older. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fine, come on in, no problem. Uh, we're gonna talk about symptoms of uh, sleepiness and fatigue, uh, what the difference is and what they might indicate. Um, we'll go into some specific causes of sleepiness, and then um, the big one that people always wanna addresses insomnia, trouble sleeping, so we'll get to that as well. So let's start with the normal changes um, that occur with aging. So this is a list um, that uh, are kind of technical terms for what happens to sleep architecture uh, and sleep time, and we'll go over each one individually. Okay. So the first thing that tends to happen to our sleep as we age is our sleep phase advances which means that it gets earlier. So sleep in those early morning hours tends to be reduced, uh, and where, whereas our peak sleepiness level occurs earlier in the evening. So, you know, in sleep medicine, when we talk about circadian rhythms, people either tend to be night owls or larks is the other, other uh, version of that. So you tend to become more of a lark as you age. That's kind of normal. Uh, sleep efficiency can decrease. And sleep efficiency is just a term that means how, how efficient your time in bed is used. So how much sleep time there is divided by the time in bed. And that tends to decline mostly because of more awakenings during the night. Um, this one um, is kind of you know, it's it could a little bit of a reduced sleep time can be normal. So, in general, what I tell people when I see them in my clinic is your sleep need does not change over time, and there may be a slight decrease, but in general, it's pretty stable. So it's a little bit um, contradicting here. What what can happen is some of the sleep time that you lose at night can be made up for um, by brief daytime naps, um, and we'll talk about that as well. So a decrease in the, sleep, in the sleep latency during the day, what that means is people tend to be more sleepy. They can fall asleep more easily compared to younger individuals. Whereas the time to fall asleep at night is prolonged, okay? Um, 
And then one thing that we calculate um, when, we, when we study people's sleep is we look at the different stages of sleep and how long it takes them to get to dream sleep. And one thing that happens with aging is we get into dream sleep earlier than we do when we're younger. And then this one, um, you know, people might uh, kind of connect to this, is that the amount of deep sleep, which we call slow-wave sleep, decreases with age. So uh, teenagers have the most, okay, and then just kind of, kind of steady decline as we get older, the amount of time that we spend in deep sleep decreases over time. So this is um, kind of a summary. So normal changes with aging include increased daytime napping, increased awakenings at night, uh, decreased sleep efficiency, decreased slow wave or deep sleep, and uh, more sleepiness during the day. So those are all you know normal changes, okay? But so what does that mean? Where's the cutoff line between what's normal and what's a symptom that I need to get checked out. So common concerns as people age are, I, I can't stay asleep, um, I sleep less than I used to, I'm tired during the day, or I'm napping more during the day. So if you apply everything we just went through, you know, those could all just be normal symptoms of aging. The real difference is that when, it, when these symptoms start to affect one's ability to function, to get things they need to do done, or it affects cognitive functioning or emotional health. If there's some kind of ill effect of this, um, then that's when it may be a sign that there's something underlying that needs to get evaluated. So if someone says to me, you know, I'm 70 years old, I wake up now a couple times a night pretty briefly and then roll over and go back to sleep, but it doesn't really bother me, I'm not as worried about that as I am about somebody who wakes up four to five times a night for half an hour, it's really getting in the way of their sleep quality and they feel tired during the day. That's the, that's the distinction as an example. So those are kind of the, the normal changes and how I think about uh, those with age. Um, I like to focus a little bit on uh, symptoms of excessive sleepiness and fatigue. And they might, they might sound similar, but they are different, um, at least from a sleep medicine perspective. So both symptoms you can describe as feeling tired, okay? Sleepiness is kind of defined as the feeling that you are dozing off, you can't stay awake. So if you were to close your eyes, you'd be asleep like that. Whereas fatigue, um, you can feel exhausted, you can have low energy, um, but you're not actually falling asleep. And of course, people can have both. Um, but when I'm evaluating what the symptom is that's bringing somebody into clinic, I'm really trying to hash out, is it mostly this or, or mostly the other? Um, and one way to do that is to use the Epworth uh, sleepiness scale, which uh, I think was printed as a handout today. So if you got a chance to grab one of those um, yeah. over on the table over here, um, we can go over this. If you'd like to grab one now, please feel free or just jot these numbers down as we go through it. So what this scale does is it, it kind of presents eight different situations. And you're supposed to score how likely you would be to fall asleep or doze off when you're doing, when you're in that situation. And the scale goes from zero to three, 
for each situation. Zero is no way, I would never doze off. And then slight, moderate, or high chance of dozing. So the first four are if you're sitting and reading. And I'm thinking, as far as time goes, I'm thinking during the daytime hours when you'd mostly want to be awake. Number two, watching TV. Number three is a situation where uh, you're sitting, but you're inactive in a public place. So maybe at a theater or a waiting room, something like that. Number four is if you're a passenger in a car for about an hour without a break. Number five is if you do get the chance to lie down and rest in the afternoon, what's the likelihood you'll fall asleep? Number six, sitting and talking to someone. Number seven, sitting quietly after lunch. And number eight is when you're driving, but you're stopped in traffic for a few minutes. So for each one of those situations, uh, you can kind of think, what's the likelihood of dozing off? And then you get a, an ultimate score when you add all those numbers up. If the score is between zero and 10, um, it's less likely to be a concerning sleepiness issue, okay? And of course, this is just a very quick and easy scale. You know, not everything's 100% here, but this kind of helps us, helps guide us in, in how we're assessing the problem. If you're between 10 and 14, there might be some mild sleepiness, and above 14 is, is definitely in the significant range. Um, and it's important to know that, you know, excessive sleepiness is not a normal sign of aging. So yes, people tend to be able to sleep more easily during the day than when they're younger. But if you score 14 or higher on this, that's something that warrants looking into, whether it's a sleep issue or a medical issue, okay? And I do want to take a minute here just to talk about drowsy driving, which is something that I counsel patients about all the time. Um, you know, drowsy driving is a big uh, safety issue. It's the second leading cause of car crashes. Um, and when you think about it, if you're drowsy, you're, it's kind of like driving intoxicated. Your reaction time is lower. Your judgment's not as good. So the rules are really if you feel drowsy or sleepy, you shouldn't drive. If you are driving along and you start to get that you know, heavy eyelid feeling, um, trouble staying awake, you need to pull over and either um, switch with another driver, get some caffeine if that helps, or you know, find a safe place to pull over and nap for even 10 or 15 minutes. Um, those are the three things that will actually address the sleepiness issue. Um, People give me a lot of little tricks that they use to keep themselves awake when they're driving, like rolling the windows down or turning the radio up, snacking. I've had patients say they slap themselves awake. Um, you know, that might be a temporary measure to kind of um, distract you, but it's not addressing the sleepiness in your brain, so you have to do one of these things. So it's important not to push through, and you, I don't want you to risk your lives, okay? So those are the symptoms. Let's talk, so, so if someone feels tired during the day, I ask a few more questions. We kind of figure out, is it more fatigue? Is it more sleepiness? If it's fatigue, kind of that low energy dragging through the day, that's a little bit of a harder one to pin down. Um, that's, that's less of what we think of um, as related to a sleep disorder. Whereas 
it certainly can be. The list of things that can cause fatigue is probably pages and pages long. So really any medical condition, um, these are some uh, common ones that can cause fatigue. Um, and really the best treatment is to optimize the management of that condition. So if, um, if someone has cardiovascular disease, making sure that you're on the right medication regimen, um, you know, that, that you're optimally treated is going to optimize the effect or minimize, I should say, the effect that fatigue has. How do you distinguish between depression and anxiety? The difference between depression and anxiety. Um, depression we think of as a, a dis so major depressive disorder as a disorder in mood. And the cardinal features are low mood or not enjoying things that you know, one used to enjoy. Okay? And there are a lot of other symptoms. Anxiety, we think of as more on the on the worry, <coughs> hypervigilant spectrum, and they can often occur together. So those, you know, the causes of fatigue are kind of broad and uh, difficult to pin down. Again, if it's sleepiness, that's something that's a little bit easier to assess, <coughs> at least from a sleep medicine perspective. So. Uh, these are some, th some of the things, causes of excessive sleepiness that I want to address today. One is insufficient sleep. Uh, medications can certainly have side effects that cause sleepiness. Um, obstructive sleep apnea is a very common condition that we see that can cause sleepiness. And restless leg symptoms is, syndrome is uh, common as well. So as far as insufficient sleep, it's important to know that we all are kind of born with our own specific need for a certain amount of sleep, okay? It's usually in the range between seven and nine. People that require less than that or more than that are rare, okay? And everyone's different. I might be a lucky seven and a half hour sleeper, whereas, you know, someone next to me, you, you know, might be eight and a half or nine hour. And you need that much to feel rested, okay? And that really doesn't change uh, with age. So we talked about it's a little harder to consolidate that at night. Sometimes you have to make up for it with some naps during the day. Um, but, but one thing that I, that I, the first thing I think of actually when people are sleepy is are they getting enough sleep? If you're getting four hours a night, I mean, there's your answer. Let's figure out how to improve that. <coughs> There are a lot of medications that can cause uh, both fatigue and sleepiness, and I've outlined some common ones here. Um, some common classes that are benzodiazepines <coughs> like Ativan. Um, any sleep medicine, of course, is going to cause drowsiness and sleepiness. Um, medications in the class of Seroquel or Risperdal are common. Uh, pain medicines like OxyContin or the opiates. Um, a lot of people are on beta blocker medications for high blood pressure or cardiovascular issues. Um, Over-the-counter agents like Benadryl and allergy medications. And then there are some antidepressants that are pretty sedating as well. Um, and alcohol uh, is another one that's sedating. So another thing I do when I'm evaluating someone with sleepiness is I carefully review their medication list and make sure that 
they're either on the minimum <coughs> amount of sedating medications or if they are, they're taking them at the right time to try to minimize that effect. And of course, I mean, some of these medications you may need, okay? Um, but we want to make sure that we're identifying uh, that you're on the minimal effective dose and you're taking it at the right time. So let's talk a little bit about obstructive sleep apnea. Um, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more common and more and more diagnosed. Um, can I just have a show of hands of how many people are familiar with sleep apnea and what it is? Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, it's not, it's something that's getting more and more addressed and um, uh, physicians uh, in all specialties are becoming more and more aware of it. Um, what it is, is uh, upper airway collapse during sleep. So when we go to sleep, all of our muscles relax, and that's normal. For people that have sleep apnea, their upper airway is crowded for whatever reason, and when they go to sleep, their airway kind of either partially or fully closes. So it's trying to breathe against that closed airway that's the problem. It's actually very common. So um, it, in a general sense, if you look at all ages, and you include mild sleep apnea, about one in five people has some degree of it. So it's not rare, okay? And it does tend to be something that gets more common or more frequent with age. And the reason for that um, is that, uh, so sleep apnea tends to get worse with weight gain. And also, as we age, kind of all the tissues in our body lose elasticity, and that includes the upper airway tissue as well. So one study that looked at uh, healthy people who are not obese showed this prevalence of sleep apnea. And in the, around age 60, 60 to 70, it was maybe 3%, 70 to 80, about a third of people had sleep apnea. And then over 80, it was 40%. So remember, these are healthy people that don't have symptoms, but, um, and, the, and they're not overweight, it's just that it's a very common issue with the upper airway. Where, where does snoring fit into this picture? Yeah. Is that partial sleep apnea? So, yeah, so the question is, uh, where does snoring fit into this? Snoring, we think of, it's kind of a cardinal feature of obstructive sleep apnea. So a lot of people snore. Not everybody that snores has obstructive sleep apnea, but it's often a clue that we need to look further. Um, and snoring can kind of happen because the upper airway is blocked with sleep apnea. It can also happen because, you know, the nasal passages or the, um, the, the nasal airway is blocked as well, so congestion. So snoring is something that might indicate sleep apnea, but you don't have to snore to have sleep apnea, if that makes sense, okay? Uh, what about the other way around? <laughs> so if, so the, uh, uh, most people... Are snorers sleep apnea? <laughs> <laughs> Let me say it, so let's, if, if, if someone snores, that doesn't necessarily mean they have sleep apnea. Okay. Okay. If someone has sleep apnea, they probably snore. <laughs> okay, but of course, in medicine, not everything's 100% true all the time. So why is it important? Um, it's important because, you know, if you're not, if your brain has to keep waking up over and over during the night to keep your airway open to breathe, you're not getting good quality sleep. So people feel like they wake up a lot, um, they have sleepiness during the day, 
But the other reason it's important is from a medical perspective, if your oxygen level drops at night kind of over and over again, that can be associated with a lot of cardiovascular issues. So risk of stroke, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, some association with heart failure, um, and, and cognitive abnormalities as well. And the cognitive effect of sleep apnea is probably due to both problems, both the sleep fragmentation and the oxygen levels at night. So it's, it's something that's worth treating if it's significant. And again, some of the symptoms are daytime sleepiness, um, trouble concentrating, uh, waking up with a headache that you didn't have when you went to sleep, feeling like your sleep is very restless, like you wake up a lot during the night. Again, loud snoring usually. Um, and some people are even aware of waking up and um, either hearing their self snore or gasping or like they're not getting enough air. And that's a pretty cardinal symptom as well. So, you know, those are the symptoms to look for. Um, if we suspect sleep apnea, the way we diagnose it is with a sleep study. Um, anybody had one? Okay, a couple people. So it involves coming in um, to the sleep lab overnight, and we actually um, you know, hook people up to a lot of little sticker electrodes, and you can see the belts for the breathing effort. Um, it certainly is not like a typical night at home, and we know that. Um, but what we're looking at really is you know, when you go into these different stages of sleep, what happens to your breathing, what happens to your oxygen level? And we kind of put that all together to look at, is there sleep apnea there? And if it is, where does it fit on the severity range? Is it more mild? Is it, is it more significant? And then if we find it, how do we treat it? There's really kind of you know, two main options for treatment. Uh, one is a CPAP machine, which stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. And the bi-level PAP is a kind of a variation on that. And that treatment is the mask that people wear at night um, that kind of uh, provides positive airway pressure to hold the airway open. Um, it's a very good therapy. It's very effective. The downside is getting used to sleeping with it. Um, Another option for some people is what we call oral appliance therapy, uh, where you go see a dentist and they fit you with a bite guard uh, that kind of pushes your jaw forward to keep the airway open that way. Um, it requires to have kind of good dentition for the appliance to anchor to. And then people sometimes ask me about surgeries for sleep apnea. Uh, they do exist, and it involves taking some tissue out of the throat, um, sometimes even moving the jaw forward, pretty invasive. It, it tends not to be our first line treatment for a lot of reasons, but there, it, it is on the table as an option. And then when people, you know, kind of what are things that we can do to improve our breathing at night? You know, avoiding alcohol before bed, um, because that makes sleep apnea worse. Um, sleeping on your side, actually, is better from a breathing perspective than on your back. Um, and of course, weight loss. So trying to maintain a healthy weight helps with everything. But Did you say about sleep on your back? Nope. Uh, so it's best to sleep on your side because sleep apnea is worse when you're on your back. And that has to do with the, the anatomy of the airway and the pull of gravity when you're on your back. And a lot of people notice that too. They'll say, my snoring is much worse when I'm, when I'm on my back. Yeah. How about the alcohol? How 
Is there a length of time before you go to bed that you could drink a, a glass of wine? Or yeah, no? yeah. I mean, so the question is, as far as the alcohol goes, what's a reasonable time frame to allow before going to sleep to minimize the effects? Um, we tend to recommend if it's one drink, like three hours before bed, and if it's two drinks, we say five hours before bed. So depending on when bedtime is, we're into the afternoon now. <laughs> so you know you have to take that with a grain of salt, but um, it is important to know that you know alcohol does uh, relax the muscles more, and it also kind of suppresses your arousal threshold, so the events get longer. So there's there's more oxygen level drops. So, and again, to put this into context, the sleep apnea, you know, we're covering that as a potential cause of daytime sleepiness. Um, restless leg syndrome is defined as spontaneous, continuous leg movements um, that are associated with unpleasant feelings in the legs. Um, people describe an urge to move the legs that kind of just builds up and doesn't go away. Symptoms tend to be worse at night and if you do move your legs, the symptoms kind of go away, at least for that time that you're moving. And a lot of people describe uh, involuntary jerking movements of the legs, which occur during sleep. One important point about restless leg syndrome is that you, someone can't have restless leg symptoms, syndrome without symptoms. So if you have restless legs, you will feel the discomfort and the urge to move. I have some patients that come in and their bed partner is trying to diagnose restless legs based on their movement at night. And, I, and that's not, no, if they're fine and they don't have symptoms where they're kicking a lot, that could be a different issue, but it's not restless legs, okay? Um, and again, this is not an uncommon, oh, yes? I've been told that if you're dehydrated, it will cause restless legs. So the question was about dehydration and restless legs. That's not, a, that's not something I usually think of as a, something that, that worsens restless legs. I found it worked. Yes? So, and one important thing is, uh, I usually think of dehydration with nocturnal leg cramping. So um, waking up with like crampy muscles or painful muscles, which would be different than restless legs. Do you find that staying hydrated helps with the restless legs feeling? Oh yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, I was going to say that, but uh, I found that if I, I hate water, <laughs> to with, yeah. and I, I hate drinking it, yeah. and if I don't, my legs will jump. Okay. If I do, they don't jump. Okay. So we have someone, just for the off-sites, we have someone in the audience who's had good effect uh, using hydration and uh, drinking enough water uh, helps improve or resolve the restless leg yeah. symptoms. So. I'm a fan of whatever works, so if that works for you, there's nothing wrong with staying hydrated. So mild symptoms um, occur in you know, 5 to 15% of the population. It does tend to be more common in women, and again, the reason I'm talking about it is it's one of those things that gets more frequent with age, um, and you can kind of see you know, in the 20s, maybe 3% of people have experienced it by mid-adulthood, 10%, and then age 80 and above, one in five people. So again, one of those things that uh, we see more often. So restless legs, most cases, are what we call you know, idiopathic, which means 
a fancy word for we don't know why it happens, um, but it happens in isolation, okay? But one of the things I think about in someone who has restless legs is do they have iron deficiency? Are their kid is their kidney function okay? Um, you can often see restless legs associated with diabetes and neuropathy from diabetes. Um, a lot of patients with Parkinson's disease will have significant restless leg symptoms. Um, and it's also associated with things like uh, rheumatoid arthritis uh, or, or poor venous return in the legs. So, you know, it can be associated with all these things. I'd say most cases we treat kind of in isolation, the restless legs alone. Does, is it only rheumatoid arthritis or is it various kinds of arthritis? That That's a good question. Um, as far as what types of arthritis, I would say I often see uh, restless legs associated with osteoarthritis as well, uh, other, other kinds. So I think that any, any pain symptoms really in the lower extremities can be associated with the restless legs feeling. So it's often an overlap of symptoms. <coughs> And what are the symptoms exactly? So I have to be honest, I've never experienced them myself yet. Um, so I do know that it's very hard for patients to describe. Um, in general, we think of it as discomfort in the legs that only happens at rest. Um, it's described as a very deep sensation and usually below the knees um, in both legs. And the terms that I've heard people use are crawling, creeping, pulling, itching, stretching tends to be worse at the end of the day um, and often when people lay down to go to sleep, right, when you don't want it to happen, right? So the way we diagnose restless legs is purely based on history. So talking to the patient, you describing to me what happens, that's how we make the diagnosis. Um, there's not really a test that we can do to prove it or disprove it. So how do we treat it? Um, the medications for restless legs are, can be very effective. Um, they do kind of come with their own list of side effects, so if we can avoid them, it's better. And some non-medication therapy is uh, iron supplementation. So even if somebody doesn't have anemia, we check for more subtle markers, so we can do some lab work to check for more subtle markers of low iron levels. And if those are low, uh, just replacing iron with an over-the-counter tablet um, can be really effective uh, to improve the symptoms. Sometimes we recommend activities that are kind of cognitively or you know, mentally engaging, almost like a distraction technique um, to reduce the symptoms when people are bored. Um, this, this one's definitely true, um, avoiding caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol. Those are all big triggers for restless legs. Um, for some more than others, yeah. Does well, does that mean three hours before bed, or does that mean it kind of totally? Yeah. So the question is how much to avoid alcohol. It depends on the person. Um, I I have some people who, as long as they have alcohol earlier in the evening, they do okay with their restless legs. I have some people who, one glass of wine with an early dinner, and they're just like that's they have very severe symptoms that they don't have otherwise. So that these are kind of a individual dependent effect. But if someone's really struggling with restless legs, it's something that I always try to see how, how much of an effect it's having. And you've got caffeine on there, yeah, so if I have caffeine for breakfast and lunch, I could open my... It certainly could. 
in the evening? It certainly could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have people that can have a uh, one cup of coffee first thing in the morning, and they struggle with uh, insomnia at night. And then I have some people who drink a pot of coffee before bed, and they don't have any trouble. So it's back to that independent uh, variability. Anybody look at the uh, genetics? Sure. Yeah, could be a genetic component. So this comes down to a trial and error thing. So if you have restless legs that are problematic, try cutting out that afternoon coffee for a couple of weeks and see if it makes a difference. That's how you know. But it, it certainly could. You like cut out the morning one, and then you got sleep problems. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're sleepy. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Was there a question in the back, or did I address it? Caffeine. Exercise can be helpful during the day. Uh, sometimes leg massage, uh, heat applied um, by heating pads. And then if we've tried these things and there's still troublesome symptoms that are interfering with sleep, there are definitely prescription medications that can be helpful. All right. Should we get to the big one, the insomnia? So insomnia is a very common problem. Um, and it's defined as really any difficult, whether it's difficulty initiating sleep, difficulty staying asleep, or waking up too early, those all fall into the insomnia category. Um, even if it's, if it's not that you're waking up, but just feeling like your sleep is non-restorative, that can be insomnia as well. And it's important to note that, you know, if somebody, you know, I see some, you know, graduate students who are staying up studying or working until 1 a.m., and then they get up at 5 for classes or to work out, and they wonder what, they call it insomnia, that's just, that's just insufficient sleep, okay? So the definition of insomnia includes the fact that you have to allow enough time for sleep, okay? And, you know, poor sleep quality can really affect a lot of daytime symptoms. Um, people can feel fatigued. They can have inattention. Um, it can affect mood, uh, and, you know, reduce motivation, and just general worry about sleep. So if you have any of these problems that seems to be related to the poor sleep, I mean, that, that constitutes a diagnosis of insomnia, okay? Yes? Down at the bottom it says ongoing worry. Yeah. Can that be a vicious cycle? It absolutely can. So as far as the ongoing worry about sleep, you can imagine if you, if you don't sleep well for a few nights, you start to think, gosh, I really better start sleeping well, or this, this, this isn't going to happen. You kind of put more pressure on yourself. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, what does that do? It makes it harder to sleep, and it, it is a vicious cycle. And so that's... Uh, when we get to the treatments, that's one of the things we will think about. So again, insomnia is very common. It's one of the most common medical concerns that patients have. Um, and about 10% of people uh, will develop chronic insomnia at some point, which lasts for more than a few weeks. Um, of course, it's something that increases with age. Um, and in one study of older individuals, 57% of people had insomnia concerns and only 12% reported normal sleep. So um, I think that's pretty telling uh, as far as how people feel about their sleep, especially in, in, in older adults. So again, uh, two main reasons to, two main uh, ways to treat insomnia. One is being very strict with behavioral measures, and 
And that means not only what you do at nighttime, but also what you do during the day to set yourself up to have a good night of sleep. Uh, there are medications available for insomnia. I never jump to those, but we'll go over those as well. And then, you know, we'll go over some other conditions that, um, and medications that might contribute to insomnia symptoms. So other medical conditions that can cause insomnia. You know, one thing that I explain to people is that one of the basic things we need for a good night of sleep is to be comfortable. So if, um, if somebody has a joint pain from arthritis or trouble breathing because of COPD, I mean, those are all things that, of course, uh, it's common sense, can interfere with sleep quality. So I'm always going through people's list of you know, medical history, making sure all of those things are optimally treated. And as far as medications go, these are some examples of both prescription or non-prescription drugs that can induce sleep problems. So alcohol is something that, it is a sedative, okay? So it makes you sleepy initially, but that only lasts for a short period of time. So um, usually what alcohol does is it, it kind of makes people sleep the first part of the night and then the second part of the night, their sleep is completely fragmented and, and disorganized and not, not restorative. So I consider alcohol uh, an insomnia-promoting agent. Um, caffeine, of course. Um, some nasal decongestants, like nasal sprays, have um, uh, drugs that can increase wakefulness. Smoking is a big one, I, um, so that people shouldn't smoke around bedtime or at all. Um, and then thyroid hormone, if, if the thyroid's kind of overcorrected, um, uh, that can cause insomnia as well. So the thing about um, insomnia, any time insomnia has been present for more than, we usually say six weeks, maybe six to eight weeks, we kind of consider it chronic insomnia. And there's almost always a component of what we call conditioning uh, or behavioral insomnia. And what that means is your brain kind of gets in the habit of sleeping that way. And, and what leads to that? Um, a lot of times when people you know, retire or have prolonged chronic illnesses, um, it leads to poor habits okay, that can impair sleep quality, like spending too much time in bed, having a very irregular sleep schedule, um, uh, drinking caffeinated beverages or alcohol near bedtime, smoking we talked about, um, a lot of times having lights or TV or radio on in the room is not ideal for sleep quality. Um, and again, we go back to the persistent worry at bedtime. So not only worry about sleep, but worry about finances, family, you know, whatever it is. That, if that's on your mind, that can keep you up. Um, and if people are napping a lot during the day and kind of dissipating their sleep drive, that can cause insomnia as well. So this, these are kind of the different categories of, of ways that we address behavioral treatment of insomnia. So sleep hygiene, stimulus, we'll go over all these, stimulus control, relaxation, sleep restriction, and then cognitive and behavioral formal therapy. So here's sleep hygiene. Um, it's these are probably things that everyone's heard uh, many times, um, but it never hurts to go over them. 
So these are 10 basic rules for a good night's sleep. So number one is sleep only as much as you need to feel rested and then get out of bed. So one thing, one mistake that I see people doing is focusing too much on getting that magic eight hours, okay? Uh, most adults, and particularly older adults, are gonna be doing just fine at seven, seven and a half. So if someone's dead set on getting eight hours, but they're waking up after seven and, and focusing on that too much, you know, that's not helpful. Now, of course, ideally you'd feel rested after seven hours, et cetera, but there's not a magic number that works for everybody, so that's important to remember. Number two is keeping a regular schedule. So as much as possible, getting up at the same time every day of the week. Uh, number three is try to avoid forcing sleep. And what does that mean? That means don't go to bed at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock just because it's bedtime. You really wanna get to the point where you're naturally getting a little sleepy and then, and then that's cueing you to go to bed. Um, whenever we try to force sleep, it's a recipe for disaster because it's not gonna work, you get more anxious and it's that vicious cycle again. Uh, number four is exercising regularly. And this is important because ex physical exercise where you get your heart rate up, it, it's, it's good for a lot of things. But one, thing's, one thing that it does importantly is increase our drive for that slow wave sleep. And that was, that's the deep sleep that I mentioned before um, that just feels really good, okay? So exercise is important, but again, not right before bedtime where you're gonna be too revved up. Uh, number five, avoid caffeine definitely after lunch. For some people, even earlier than that. Uh, we talked about no alcohol near bedtime, avoiding smoking. Um, number eight is kind of interesting, don't go to bed hungry. So you, you don't wanna go to bed right after dinner when you're stuffed, because that's, that's, that's not gonna work. But you also don't wanna go to bed hungry because that's kind of a form of being uncomfortable. So it's actually very reasonable to have a small, um, kind of snack before bed. And the snack that works best would probably be something like a um, complex carbohydrate, uh, maybe some protein. Um, How much protein? <laughs> I don't have a magic number, but just, I mean, something like maybe half of a whole grain bagel with peanut butter, for example. That's pretty limited. Yeah, it's just an example. Another piece of chicken. No, you're saying no to a piece of chicken? It's going to be individual dependent. Chicken's probably a little bit much. I'm thinking more of like um, whole grain crackers. Um, yeah. Is that too heavy? No. Um, I find that cocoa helps me. Yeah. I have insomnia. It's getting worse and worse as I get older. I just dread going to bed because I know I'm not going to be able to get to sleep. Mm -hmm. And often I have to take something to sleep. Mm -hmm. But if I'm having trouble, there's no point in lying there tossing around. And for me, if I just get up and make myself a cup of hot cocoa and sit down and drink it slowly, it helps. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Yeah. So we, a member of the audience uh, mentioned that hot cocoa seems to be something that is soothing or helps kind of um, in the evening. And that's, again, it's, if that works, I'm, I'm for it. Um, but it, again, the key is don't go to bed hungry. Um, you want to adjust the bedroom environment. So the bedroom should be cool, quiet, and dark, okay? And then this number 10 is a kind of funny one. You know, deal with your worries before bedtime. What the heck does that mean? 
So a lot of times, a lot of times people are very busy during the day, and then that time before bed is when they finally have a chance to just kind of sit down and go over everything that happened or anything they need to do for tomorrow. Um, and it might sound funny, okay, but this actually helps people. If you set aside like a worry time before, you know, I don't know, like in the afternoon, and it's a time when you're actually allowing yourself to think about these things, um, plan your next day, you know, what needs to be done for this and that. Um, it's, it doesn't solve the problem, but what it allows you to do is when it comes time for bed and your mind starts going, it's a little bit easier to just say, no, I already dealt with that. I'm not going to... I'm not going to solve anything tonight. It's a little bit easier to kind of, kind of block that thought from your mind. And I've had patients that say it actually really helps. Um, so that's something to consider. Um, you said cocoa. Uh, I have a cocoa drink that has glutathione in it, mm -hmm. uh, whey powder. Mm -hmm. so, that's a protein. So a cocoa drink with glutathione, which yeah. is a protein part powder. Yeah. My only concern about Cocoa, as a general recommendation, is that it tends to have caffeine in it. Yeah. Any, any chocolate has caffeine. So I don't know if that would be the first thing I would try if it's not already working for you. Um, probably, probably, you know, classic warm milk, okay, uh, might be something better. So let's talk about stimulus control. So this is, um, so this is interesting. Um, one of the things that happens is when we are not sleeping and it's been it's, you know, hours and you're trying to fall asleep, just staying in bed, tossing and turning is the worst thing you can do. And the reason for that is that when that's happening, your brain is forming associations, okay? So the more you spend your time in bed not, not sleeping, your brain is learning that, oh, this is what the bedroom is for, this is what the bed is for. And it starts, that's what helps it become a conditioned response. So when it comes time for bed, your brain is like, oh, this is when I get alert and, and you know, roll around for two hours without sleeping. So stimulus control is really the way to uh, control the kind of stimulus that the bed is for your brain. So I only want people sleeping in bed, okay? Sleep and sex is what they say. So what does that mean? Only go to bed when you're sleepy. No TV in bed, no reading in bed, no eating in bed. Um, and if you're not falling asleep in, I'd say 20 minutes, okay? And I don't want you looking at the clock, but when it feels like it's just not happening, I want you to get up and go out of the bedroom as ideal. Go do something else. Um, <laughs> go do another activity. And that activity should be relaxing, even boring. Um, it should be in a low light setting, um, and it should be something that's easy to set aside and, and go to bed when you're drowsy, okay? And I would want that to happen repeatedly. So I would rather have you do that five times than lay in bed for hours not sleeping. And the reason for that is this whole idea of retraining your brain to use the bed for sleep, not for wakefulness. And then if you need an alarm, then use an alarm to kind of get up at the same time each morning um, and try to avoid, I'd say, avoid long naps during the day, okay? Questions about this? Um, yeah. When it says, when you had said, do something low, you know, when you get out of bed, Yeah. what is that? 
So that's a good question. Um, the question is what activity should one do when you get out of bed? Um, it depends on the person. So I have people, I guess if I would say the ideal would probably be maybe playing solitaire with a deck of cards, but that's just an example. Um, I have people that read, um, huh, okay. and I would recommend it not be something that is too engaging, like a, pay, a real page turner, because that's going to get you engaged and it's going to be hard to set aside. But if there's a you know, magazine or um, you know, anything that you find kind of just soothing to go through, you know, a general rule is that tablets or screens are bad. And yes, as a sleep doctor, I have to agree with that. But I also have people that if they play a game on the tablet with a low light, that actually helps soothe them and they can put that aside and, and go to sleep. So for some people, it's that. For some people, it's television. Some people knit. You know, the, the, it really depends on what is going to work for you. Um, but the idea is you don't want it to be something that's too engaging either physically or uh, cognitively. So the things not to do are chores. Don't balance a checkbook. Uh, you know, don't organize a project. That kind of thing. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Sometimes uh, I wake up and can't get back to sleep. I'll get up and make a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. so sleepy tea, they call it. Mm -hmm. yep. And uh, I'll drink that and maybe warm my computer. Yep. So I'll, I'll go back to sleep after that. So an example from the audience is uh, if if he can't sleep, he'll get up and make some sleepy time tea. Maybe use the computer for a little bit. Um, Yep, not, nothing, nothing wrong with that. How long are you usually up before you go back to sleep? An hour. An hour, yeah. My only concern with that example is when, it, when the activity is that, um, uh, I don't want to say, it's almost structured. It's uh, it kind of like you're getting up, you do something, and then my concern is that would be a conditioned response. So I'd, I, would, I would wonder if your brain is kind of in the habit now of doing that. And that's why you wake up, because your brain's used to it. I'd kind of prefer a more simple, um, simple activity. Don't do it that often. Okay. No. Again, if it works, yeah. I'm not here to change it. Okay. Yeah. Another question? Uh, yes. Um, I've had uh, insomnia problems waking up around three o'clock in the morning uh, since I was in my thirties, mm. and what has soothed me is the radio. Mm -hmm. I listen to NPR. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm able to sleep through that and mm -hmm. follow this. So in other words, it's a diversion for me mm -hmm. to stop worrying. Yep. I worry about my students, my children, my husband. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not good. Well, so this is a great question because. So, why? so the question is, you know, uh, with early morning awakening, using the radio um, as kind of a distracting or soothing device to get back to sleep. All of these recommendations when we talk about sleep hygiene and all of these rules, these are for people that are really struggling with insomnia and need help organizing things to improve their sleep quality. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in it, it, you have to take an individual approach. So if somebody struggled with insomnia for a long time and found something that works for them and turning on that radio allows you to get back to sleep and you feel like that sleep is good quality, and the radio is not waking you up again. I'd be okay with that. Does that make sense? So, mm -hmm. as a general rule, you know, if someone has the TV on all night and they wonder why they keep waking up, that's why these rules are important to trigger that person to turn the TV off. Okay, um, but these are general rules, and then we have to apply them on an individual basis, and that's part of 
part of the therapy of insomnia. I think from a, from a purist perspective, um, the radio is something that is continuing to put out um, sensory stimuli when you're asleep and maybe interfering with sleep <coughs> that way. Um, but again, does it work? Uh, unless they're talking about someone, <laughs> you know, who's yeah. screaming, fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a problem because right. that does wake you up. Exactly. And it makes my dog very happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also have another question. The do not take a nap during the day, but the previous slides are talking about you getting sleep by napping during yep. the day. Yep. And I didn't think that you could accumulate X number of hours by counting those naps during the day. Yeah. That's a good question too. So the question is about, you know, what is the deal with daytime naps? Are they good or are they bad? Because there's kind of been conflicting recommendations. Brief restorative naps that happen before, you know, by early afternoon are completely healthy and okay if they're not impacting sleep at night. So the, the naps that I'm talking about are people that have a poor night of sleep and then make up for it by sleeping three hours in the day. That will absolutely dissipate some homeostatic sleep drive and impact, it'll, it'll become a vicious cycle. So, you know, as far as, you know, getting an X number of sleep, you, you can actually um, get too much sleep in the day and then, and then have that affect sleep at night. Okay. Yes. So um, you've mentioned sleep hygiene. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed that when I was working, you know, at a career job, I would, in the evening, shave and you know, sort of get myself personal hygiene issues, and then when you get up in the morning, you know, you kind of whip through things. Yeah. Retiring, now I can wait till the morning to shave. Uh -huh. Then you're waking up, you're itchy, you're uh -huh. quite feeling quite right. So I found that going back to my old routine mm -hmm. helps. I mean, you're just going to bed feeling clean, and mm -hmm. as you were saying earlier, under the comfort section, I yeah. guess. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that I found for me if I went back to that. Yeah, absolutely. So a good example of really, um, you know, when, when people think of insomnia, they're thinking of what happens between, you know, 10 and 6, a, you know, 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. But you, it really, you know, you have to think about what you're doing during the day, what you're doing before bed to optimize your sleep quality. Yes. I was just going to share that over, as the years, the last few years have gone by, I wake up more and more during the night. I, I used to be but now it's like two, three, four times a night. Um, and one of the things that has really helped, I've taken yoga for many, many years, and I never thought of applying the breathing practices to my getting up during the night. But boy, I had surgery this year, and my yoga instructor said, why don't you try this? Because I had to get up and take painkillers during the night, and then I couldn't go back to sleep, and I'm in pain, and I'm not sleeping, and then you know your mind's racing. Yeah. And that has been a huge help. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you, you focus on, on the breathing and your mind kind of goes blank. Yeah, absolutely. So just a story from the audience about uh, using yoga or specifically breathing exercises to help relaxation. And we'll actually get to that next. Um, you know, as far as the evidence that's out there, so like what studies have been done that helps with insomnia, sleep hygiene isn't really helpful. So me sitting here telling you the rules, that's not very helpful. But the things that have, the, what does have a lot of good evidence are relaxation techniques, including breathing techniques, um, and progress, progressive muscle relaxation. So thank you for sharing that, and we'll, and we'll get to that as well. I think, next slide, thank you, perfect segue. So um, a couple different uh, relaxation techniques to just to kind of mention. So one is progressive muscle relaxation, and there's good evidence that this is helpful for insomnia. 
And the procedure here is to relax one muscle at a time until you get through your whole body. And what you do is you contract the muscle for one to two seconds and then relax, and then repeat that several times. And I think the idea there is to kind of, um, you know, help your body distinguish between tense and relaxed states. So that you're tensing and relaxing, and then you do that throughout your whole body. So start with your face, jaw, neck, kind of move down the body. Um, and that's very helpful for not only physical relaxation, um, but it helps with mental relaxation and somewhat of a distracting technique as well. Um, and then the second example is the, you know, what we call the relaxation response, which really has to do with the breathing. So um, you kind of just lie comfortably, you want to establish a very relaxed abdominal breathing pattern, and you know, again, try to direct your mind away from these everyday thoughts to something more neutral. And that's going to be easier if you've had your, your worry time that I told you about. So sleep restriction therapy. We'll talk about this. Um, this is something that is often done as part of a course of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So sometimes when people have really struggled with insomnia and they've done all these things and, and they're still having trouble, we'll actually prescribe a course of seeing a therapist over the course of maybe three months, let's say to work on their sleep pattern and, and sleep uh, scheduling. Sleep restriction therapy works on the basis of one of the things that people do if they're not sleeping is they think that, well, I'm just going to go to bed earlier, try to get more sleep. Or, well, that was a bad night, I'm going to stay in bed for a few more hours to try to get some sleep. Again, you know, logically might make sense, but it's a bad thing to do for your sleep because if you're allowing 10, 11 hours in bed, your brain only needs to sleep seven of that. So there's going to absolutely be more insomnia during that time. Um, and then it, it starts off the vicious cycle where you're spending time in bed awake and it, it's hard to control. So we'll kind of go through the procedure here. I think this is something that somebody who's very motivated and organized could do on their own. Um, it's often something that's done in the context of therapy, so keep that in mind. So what you do um, is you keep a sleep diary for about a week. And there are, there are sleep diary handouts on the table over here. And what that means is, I mean, don't spend too much time on it. It doesn't have to be a work of art. But, you know, a couple minutes a day, jot down when you went to sleep, when you woke up, if you napped, that kind of thing. And then you want to calculate your average sleep time per day. And then that's going to be your sleep window. So what's an example of that? If you, if you keep a week of information and you go and calculate how much you're really sleeping per day, and let's say it's six hours, okay, you're going to set that as your sleep window. So to set your sleep window, you say, okay, well, when do I want to wake up? In this example, it's 7 o'clock. So I, on average, I'm only getting six hours of sleep a day. I need to be up by 7 in the morning. So that's going to mean your sleep window is 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. So you have to stay up until 1 a.m., okay? And avoid daytime naps that are longer than 15 or 20 minutes. Does that, does that make sense? So you're basically calculating how much you're sleeping and then only allowing that much time for sleep. And what you're going after here is improving sleep efficiency. So as you constrict the time that you're allowing for sleep, your brain will naturally uh, make up the difference with improved sleep efficiency. Not the first night, okay, but over a week or two, this will increase. 
So you continue to keep the sleep diary logs. You write down when you went to sleep, when you woke up. And then at the end of the next week, you're going to calculate this sleep efficiency that I talked about. So on average, how much time are you sleeping over how much time in bed? And the sweet spot we want to get to is at least 85%. Okay? So if your sleep efficiency is less than that, we need to restrict your sleep time even more. So for the next week, you're going to go to bed 15 minutes later, 1.15 now a.m., and do the same thing, calculate it. If you're at that sweet spot, um, well, I guess I should say if you're above, if you're 85 or above and you feel rested, that's kind of good. That's, what, that's our goal, okay? If you're 85% but you're still feeling sleepy during the day, which you may be because you may need more than six hours of sleep, then you're going to move the bedtime earlier by 15 minutes, so 12.45 a.m. in this example. Um, and then you just continue to keep the diary and make the adjustments no more than once a week to kind of try to figure out what's going to be your best sleep window. Okay? Does that make sense? Questions about it? You talked about having all this time, time that you've got to do things, but then you tell you the same breath that you don't want us to have a clock. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. So how do you, the question is, how do you get around being so precise about your sleep schedule without looking at the clock? And that's a balance. Um, I don't want people obsessing over if they went to bed at 10.13 versus 10.15, okay? It's, it's a gist, number one. Number two, um, you know, as far as wake-up time goes, if you need an alarm to get up, you can set the alarm, but I don't like people to have the clock facing the bed so that you can turn the, turn the clock away. Um, so it's a balance, you know. We are talking about times, but um, more in a general sense. Yes? Does it make sense at all to have an organized wake-up time in the middle of the night? I tend to fall asleep around 10, 30, 11, mm -hmm. which I used to be up very late. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now I fall asleep earlier. I'm always waking up around 3. Mm -hmm. Well, I shouldn't say always. Sometimes I do. So that's what I'm asking. Should, if, if you know that that's going to be a tendency of yours, yeah. to just say, all right, I'll wake up at 3, mm -hmm. be up for an hour, mm -hmm. and then go back to sleep at 4. So the question is, what, what about um, if you just kind of incorporate a natural tendency to wake up into your sleep pattern? So sleep 11 to 3, be up from 3 to 4, let's say, and then go back to sleep from, what, 4 to 7 or 8? For example, okay, so the, the issue there, it, it's kind of a general question about uh, like sleep in, in, in fragments, okay? Medically, if you're getting at least seven to eight hours of sleep in a 24-hour period, that should be okay. Um, there's no evidence where I can tell you it's not okay to do that. Um, what I would say is, is you should probably either make the decision to embrace that and make it your regular pattern, or try to nip it in the bud and consolidate your sleep. Because again, our brains really like consistency. So, you know, that, that's, that would probably be my advice. Um, but then I guess it's easy enough to say, well, if I don't wake up, I'll just sleep through. And if that's working for you, that's, that's fine. And then just a word about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, um, the formal therapy we talked about where we refer people to see a therapist and work on their sleep. It's a formalized treatment plan. It's an average of eight sessions. So you see the therapist like once every two weeks. You keep these sleep diaries. Um, 
and kind of put these recommendations into place. The analogy I use with people is it's kind of like having a personal trainer for your sleep. So, you know, telling people how to adjust their sleep pattern is kind of like telling someone to lose weight. It's easy to say and difficult to do. So this is bringing in a personal trainer for your sleep to really optimize these recommendations to each individual case. Let's talk a little bit about um, medications for insomnia. So medications or pharmacotherapy is another option that we have to treat insomnia. They can be a helpful tool. I don't consider them the best treatment for chronic insomnia, and the reason for that is, you know, if you do, if you happen to be lucky enough to find a medication that works for you, uh, it, it ends up being something that's helpful, but then if you stop taking it, the insomnia comes back. So it's kind of like you're covering up a problem and then being chained to kind of taking this medication for the, for the rest of your life or, you know, for a long time. And there are side effects of these medications, and then there's also the risk of, um, you know, your body getting dependent on it or even psychologically uh, getting uh, dependent on the medication. General considerations are um, you shouldn't take sleep aids with alcohol. You want to be careful if there's any kidney or liver issues because the medicines will be metabolized more slowly. And if you do have any potential symptoms of sleep apnea or any risk factors, sedative medications can make that worse. So it's important to, another reason, maybe get that evaluated first. I do tend to um, discourage over-the-counter sleep medications, um, mostly because people don't find them helpful for very long, and they tend to be associated with side effects um, like urinary retention, confusion, um, sedation in the morning. So as a general rule, I don't, I don't recommend those. Um, and I never recommend alcohol for sleep. So what, what can be the adverse effects? Um, you know, ex so the idea is you're using it for sleep, but if that goes a little bit too far and causes over-sedation or grogginess in the morning, that could be a side effect. Um, you know, these medications can impair, can impair cognitive function um, pretty substantially, um, and delirium goes along with that kind of confusion. Some of the medications have been associated with sleep-related behaviors that people don't remember, so that can be a little scary. Um, problems with balance and falls or fractures is a big concern of mine with these medications. And then, you know, maybe the medication helps with sleep, but then it's really kind of... Uh, kind of keeping you down for the rest of the day, and that's not good either, okay? And the reason this is important is there was actually a really well done study that kind of looked at many smaller studies, and they looked at populations of people over the age of 60, which I don't think is particularly old, but that's the age that they used. And, you know, with the sleep medications, there was a slight uh, improvement in sleep quality or total amount of time that people slept. Um, but if you look at how significant those benefits were versus the, the big increase in side effects, it just was really clear that on a statistical level, these medications aren't, aren't worth their risk, okay? Now that's not to say that there might be an individual case, and there are, where I'll use a medication, um, but it's important to know that data, okay, when you're making that decision. So I just wanna, um, 
kind of go over a best approach to insomnia just to kind of summarize everything we went over. So if, if you're somebody who's really struggling with insomnia or looking for some guidance, uh, number one, either talk to your physician or, or make sure we're not missing any medical issue or mental health condition. Um, come see us in the sleep clinic if there might be another sleep disorder that I mentioned and go over your medication list to make sure that that's not contributing, okay? So once you get that done, I would uh, take a couple of those sleep diary handouts and work on the behavioral recommendations that we went over today. And if those attempts are unsuccessful or minimally helpful, then consider seeing us for a sleep evaluation uh, where we will thoroughly kind of go through your sleep history, symptoms, and come up with a plan. And number four, um, you know, medications have their place, but I usually recommend them short term, and you want to be just especially vigilant or careful um, in adults over the age of 60. So uh, I think this is the end. Um, so we kind of covered normal sleep changes that occur with aging. We kind of distinguished sleepiness from fatigue, and hopefully you guys, you got a sense with your Epworth scales there. Um, causes of sleepiness, you want to make sure you're getting enough sleep. Look at your medication lists. Sleep apnea and restless legs are very common, so that's something that you know we can help treat if your primary care doctor is, um, would like help, or you can see the primary care doctor as well. And then insomnia, uh, we kind of spent a lot of <coughs> behavioral ways to treat it, um, and then there are some medications. So uh, that's the end of the presentation, but I'm happy to take any questions or, or comments. I did a, a sleep test once, huh? years ago, mm -hmm. and with all of that intrusive testing stuff going on, I didn't get a wink of sleep, so I don't know what came out of it. Yeah. They, they said, oh yeah, we got information we need. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. So the question is a very logical one, which is, during a sleep study, if you're hooked up to all these wires and belts, how do you expect to study sleep accurately? Uh, so it's important to know that on a sleep study, we don't need eight hours or seven hours of sustained sleep. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, sleep apnea is one of those things where we see it once you fall asleep. So if there's, I'd say if there's a half hour or an hour, there's probably enough information there. And I would say 98% of the time, our patients that come in, we get enough information on the sleep study to know where to go from there. In cases where that's not the, you know, people don't sleep at all, and it, it does happen, uh, sometimes we'll consider using a sleep aid for the night of the study. Um, in some cases, a home sleep test might be appropriate. Um, a home sleep test is a little unit um, that you, you actually use at home. It's a much more limited version. Um, but for some people, that can be appropriate. Um, so it's a reasonable concern, but it's rarely something that we see. We usually we get enough information. So yeah. how do you work all of this in with your sleep pot? Uh -huh. <laughs> you've got two people in the bed, you've got one person that's maybe having a problem, somebody else that doesn't. Mm. You're trying to make all these changes. I've got to imagine that there are yeah. issues. Yeah. So yeah, the question is how do you fit all these recommendations or uh, you know, changes uh, in dealing with a bed partner? Um, I, I think that that's something that has to be considered. 
Um, are, are you talking more about like the scheduling issues or the scheduling if we do or like just things like you know, I, I, my wife in particular, you said the tablet. She likes to wake up mm -hmm. about the same time I yeah. do when she's over there playing a, a game. Yeah, you know, and it doesn't actually bother me, but um, yeah. I can imagine for some people just listening to your discussion, those yeah. types of things work. Right, especially when we fall back on that. Well, it's just you know it depends on the individual, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, there was a study done recently that uh, looked at uh, people that sleep with a bed partner versus that sleep alone. And sure enough, when you sleep with a bed partner, your sleep quality suffers, okay? Um, but people prefer that than, than, than sure. sleeping without their bed partner. So it's one of those things where, you know, it either works or if it doesn't, you find a way around it. Um, I mean, I've had, I've had plenty of patients who've made the decision with their partner to sleep in separate rooms or separate beds just because that is better for their sleep and they don't, it's fine for their relationship. Well, I'm assuming. Um, and, and it's fine, you know. So it's an independent decision. Yes? I have a question. 40 years ago, I was taught biofeedback techniques. Are you still using those techniques? So the, Yeah, so the question's about biofeedback. And do you remember what it was? In, in uh, it, it was linked with transcendental meditation, um, I had this little thing on my finger and it, it recorded my body temperature. So the whole point was to teach me my muscles yeah. and, and how to relax them and they gave me techniques on how to do that. And, and that calmed it, me down and I could sleep. And what were the, um, so it was body temperature, was it ever like heart rate or, or brain yes. waves or anything like that? So no, no brain, I have no brain. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, biofeedback is, is interesting, and, and that's, it's not something that we use commonly <laughs> today. Um, and what it is, is it's a way to kind of um, have immediate feedback from uh, an objective sensor. So whether that's body temperature or heart rate or sometimes brain waves, um, to kind of see the effect of breathing exercises or relaxation exercises. And it's almost a way to teach someone how to relax. Yes. And for whatever reason, and I don't know if this is insurance reimbursement based or just practice guidelines, it's not something that we do a lot of today. Um, but I think you could one could probably get a similar effect with practice. So the, the relaxation exercises that we talked about with um, muscle relaxation or breathing, it, it really is a skill. Um, and it's not something that you just do once and expect it to work. It's, it's uh, it, it, it takes practice, so we probably, it, it's, it's a good therapy for insomnia. We probably should do more of it, but, you know, did it help you? Yes, it did. Yeah. Yes. You briefly mentioned uh, yoga breathing, mm -hmm. and I find that fairly mm -hmm. effective, mm -hmm. even if I don't fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, regular attention to breathing and, and deep breathing is important for, uh, not only, I mean, insomnia and sleeping and also uh, anxiety during the day, managing stress. Did you have a question? I had a question about, um, when I did the sleep study, I had an opposite experience. I thought I slept great. Mm -hmm. I thought, uh, you know, what a great night's sleep. <coughs> and then I found out that I had mild to moderate sleep apnea, mm -hmm. you know, even though I thought it was a great night. So now I seem fine. You know, some of the symptoms have decreased. 
do do a lot of people go around without having any idea they've got sleep apnea and they don't have any symptoms and they still have it mm -hmm. and it's detrimental to the rest of their health? Sure. Yeah, so the question is about, um, I think it's, you kind of hit on two things. One is night-to-night -night variability. So, you know, does a good night in the sleep lab, but what if that's not a representative night? And then number two, how do severity of sleep apnea and symptoms correlate? So as far as um, night-to-night -night variability, I think, of course, that happens, um, but not to an extent where we think it really makes an effect on the diagnosis and, and treatment plans. Um, and as far as symptoms, you know, most people, mostly, there's a one-to-one -one correlation. So the more severe sleep apnea is, the more people are going to be aware of it in their breathing at night um, and, you know, waking up gasping and sleepiness during the day. But that's absolutely not true for everyone. Um, I see some people that feel completely fine. They feel they sleep perfectly. Um, they deny any sleepiness during the day. And then their sleep apnea is very severe, like scary severe, okay? And I also have the other spectrum where people have very minimal sleep apnea, but we treat it and, and it's, uh, they feel like a new person. So those are the outliers, okay? But they exist. And so that's why I tell people it's important yeah, and again, from my perspective, if there are any concerns about sleep apnea or sleep-related breathing, doing the test to know what's there is important. Because if it is mild, or maybe even mild to moderate, and you're feeling okay, we might not recommend any treatment. Um, but if it's surprisingly severe, then it could, certainly could be affecting cardiovascular health. So particularly if there's snoring or awakenings and someone has high blood pressure or uh, you know, heart disease or something like that. It's worth worth checking out. Any other questions? I would like your opinion on an occasional use of melatonin. For sleep. The question was about occasional use of melatonin as a sleep aid. Um, the evidence for it is weak as a sleep aid, okay? So if you take people in a study and you give them melatonin versus placebo, it doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. But I can tell you, I have plenty of people in my clinic that say that it helps them. And there's really not a lot of risks with it. It's pretty safe. That's what I was curious about. Yeah. So if it's this is only occasional. I mean, yeah. I have no complaints really, just occasionally, and that annoyed me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> occasional use of melatonin, if it's helpful, is completely fine. Okay. Yeah. That's what my tea's got in. What's that? Oh, the tea? The Sleepy time tea? Yeah. Is that with a little bear on the front? A little bear oh. with a... <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Does that got melatonin in it? No. Yes. Does it? Yes. There are a lot of over-the-counter products that include melatonin. Um, but, but that's herbal, isn't it? I mean, I think. I well, melatonin is, a, I mean, it's a, it's a synthetic hormone that, that's created. Yeah. We make melatonin ourselves in, in our pineal gland. So taking it exogenously is just kind of helping the body support what it, what it does naturally. Okay. Thank you. Another one, valerian, I think. 